Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 6th, 2018. This is episode 2265 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we are going to have a good one today. It is uh, Listener Feedback Day. This is where you send me emails with TSPC in the subject line. And uh, then something like question for Jack, comment for Jack, thought for Jack, whatever. Then, down in the body of the email, give me your question, your point, whatever. Do it in one, two sentences maximum. Then hit the return key. Then give me as many details as you see fit. But if you can't condense your point or your question into one to two sentences, uh, it probably won't get through screening just because I can't spend the time to screen that way. I've got to know what I'm looking at right up front and right away. It's me trying to help you help me, okay? Or me trying to help you help yourself, something like that. Anyway, uh, what do we got up today? We got a simple idea. This is just for me, actually, not a feedback idea. I have a simple idea to make a point to the people behind the straw lunacy in California, the banning of straws. Right now, it's in the idea stage, and I'll need someone to do some legal eagle work out there to make sure we don't get anybody in any trouble if we do this. But I have a, a pretty... Um, pretty benign form of civil disobedience that might actually make a really big point to the people that actually thought it was a good idea to say that they would throw somebody in jail for up to six months for the possession of a freaking plastic tube. Yeah, I'll save it for them. When I say this, you're going to be like, why didn't anybody else come up with this? Because they're not me, I guess. I don't know. Uh, next, a uh, question on dealing with poison ivy on your property. Have, uh, somebody's finally asking me about the Walpini Greenhouse. This is a thing that's been on Facebook over and over and all the groups on ag, uh, where you make a hole in the ground and they put a greenhouse top over it. It's an in-ground greenhouse. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you some thoughts on it. I have a question on negotiating a pay raise. I have an awesome Jack, you're a jerk email, one of the best ones yet. I have a question on dealing with a dog with trust issues. Uh, a little piece on how fast the shift in energy is really happening and, and, and what it means. Um, I have a little real quick follow-up on the Reliant Robin. Uh, we, the, the song Radar Love, the, the, the video that Golden Earring had for it, had a guy driving this car in, in Britain called the Reliant Robin. I said it was the stupidest car that ever existed. And uh, I actually said it was the dumbest car that ever existed. And I've been challenged with a few other cars. I'll tell you why I still think it is the dumbest car, even though there actually are probably some cars that are a little bit worse. I think my logic will make sense. Um, next up, transplanting three-year-old apple trees. Is it worth it? How would you do it if it was? Dealing with duck wastewater, that's something I have a little bit of experience with, uh, quite a few years of it, in fact. And distilling, quote-unquote, fuel from hemp seeds. And you can kind of guess what we're going to be talking about. What fuel, really, yeah, I mean, get glug, glug. Anyway, we'll get to all of that in just a moment. Before I get to your feedback today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Western Botanicals. Uh, Western Botanicals is an awesome company. If it's herbal and legal, you'll find it at Western Botanicals, and that you have real people that really care about you that will really answer a real phone and talk to you. Not an automated system and not some help center in New Delhi or something like that. They're in Utah. Uh, they have a, a goal 
to, to have an herbalist in every home in America. I think that's a goal that they'll never achieve, which is why it's the kind of goal you should have that always keeps you reaching and striving for something greater. I love Western Botanicals because they have top-quality stuff. It's all either organic or wild-crafted, and uh, you can always depend on them to get you exactly what you've ordered. And if you think you might... Nah. Sponsor of the day number one today, who is my go-to for everything herbal is Western Botanicals. From formulations that are already put together to raw herbs and all of the things you might need to make raw herbs into your own preparations, you'll find it at Western Botanicals, where they have a goal of putting an herbalist in every home in America. Such noble goals like that really give a company a great mission. And these are mission-oriented people, real people that really care about you uh, for your herbal needs. You can check them out at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. It's a pretty simple concept that a gun without ammo is not really very useful. Yeah, all the hoopla about 3D printed guns until we have 3D printed gunpowder and brass and primers, you know, it's still only going to do so much. And so you need to stock up on ammo. Where are you going to get it? If you're smart and part of this audience, you're going to check out BulkAmmo.com. They have all the calibers that you're probably looking for in bulk, ready to ship right to your front door, and that shipping is lightning fast. You can learn more at BulkAmmo.com. Remember, both Western Botanicals and Bulk Ammo do discount programs for members of the MSB or Member Support Brigade. So before you place your orders with them, go check your MSB benefits section. On that note, if you're not an MSB member, why not? Seriously, I mean, if you... Uh, you listen to this show, you probably do things like buy seeds and buy plants and buy herbs and buy ammo and all kinds of stuff like that. And even if you don't do one of those things, you probably do all the rest of them. And then there's a bunch of other stuff that you probably invest in in your life on a daily basis or at least, you know, here and there throughout a year. And if you join the MSB or Member Support Brigade, which you can find out more about by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members, well, if you do that, then you get discounts on all that stuff you're spending money on. And the money goes right back into your pocket. And you can uh, learn more, again, just by going to survivalpodcast.com, clicking on members. It's a membership program that does pay for itself, so there's no reason not to become a member today if you're not already a member. And those of you that are members or have ever been a member, let me thank you for your support of this show. Without you, we could not bring it to you five days a week, Monday through Friday. All right, before I get into your stuff, guys, let's uh, go ahead and take a look at this day in history. This is August the 6th. What happened on August the 6th? Well, a lot of stuff did. But the biggest thing that's ever happened in mankind in some ways happened on August the 6th, 1945. The atomic bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. On this day in 1945, at 8.16 a.m. Japanese time, an American B-29 bomber, the Enola Gay, drops the world's first atomic bomb over the city of Hiroshima. Approximately 80,000 people are killed as a direct result of the blast. Another 35,000 are injured, and at least another 60,000 would be dead by the end of the year from the effects of the fallout. U.S. President Harry S. Truman, discouraged by the Japanese response to the Potsdam Conference, demand for unconditional surrender made the decision to use the atomic bomb to end the war in order to prevent what he predicted would be a much greater loss of life were the United States to invade Japanese mainland. And so on August the 5th, while a conventional bombing of Japan was underway, Little Boy, the nickname for one of two atomic bombs available for use against Japan, was loaded on to Lieutenant Colonel Paul W. Tilbert's plane on Titanian Island in the Marianas. 
Tibbetts B-29, named the Enola Gay after his mother, left the island at 2.45 a.m. on August the 6th. Five and a half hours later, Little Boy was dropped, exploding 1,900 feet over a hospital and unleashing the equivalent of 12,500 tons of TNT. The bomb had several inscriptions scribbled on its shell, one of which read, Greetings to the Emperor from the men of the Indianapolis, which is the ship that transported the bomb to the Marianas. And of course, we know what happened to that ship as it went down, and most of the men, far more than half the men on that ship, uh, were lost to the sea uh, when a Japanese uh, submarine torpedoed them. And many that went into the water died of injuries, uh, dehydration, disease, sharks, It was uh, later enshrined in uh, American pop culture uh, with the movie Jaws, and we covered that recently. The damage this bomb did is hard to really articulate and understand. All we can do is kind of look at numbers and try to understand what they mean. There were 90,000 buildings in Hiroshima before the bomb was dropped. Only 28,000 remained after the bombing. That's all the buildings. It's like houses and stuff. 90,000 buildings, 28,000 remained after the bomb was dropped. Um, the city had 200 doctors before the explosion. There were only 20 left alive capable of working to tend to the wounded. There were 1,780 nurses, but only 150 remained who were able to tend to the sick and dying. According to John Hershey's classic work, Hiroshima, the Hiroshima city government had put hundreds of schoolgirls to work clearing fire lanes in the event of an incendiary bomb attack. They were out in the open when the Enola Gay dropped its load. There were so many spontaneous fires set as a result of the bomb that a crewman on the Enola Gay stopped trying to count them. Another crewman remarked, it's pretty terrific. What a relief it worked. We look back at this and we wonder, how could we kill that many people? And we look at some of the other things that were done in World War II and the wars immediately after them and the wars before them. And I think that we have lost touch with the reality of how cruel humanity has been in, the, in our past. And there are people out there who would still go to these levels, and I think we have tried to convince ourselves that they would not. It's good to be a student of history so you know what horrors are possible for mankind, because sooner or later they will present themselves again. And it's easy to look back and th on this today and think, you know, man, the United States shouldn't have done that. But at the time, Truman was pretty correct in his assessment that a direct assault on Japan would have resulted in a loss of millions of lives instead of tens of thousands. If Japan would have held out that long, and it's debatable whether they would have or they wouldn't have, in many ways we can come up with justifications for the dropping of the first atomic bomb. I'll save my thoughts on the second one for when we get to that day. Not far from now. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your feedback for me today. And as I said, I, I want to start out with an idea. Just, just a, a, kind of a, a funny thing to do, but it might actually make a legitimate point. So in, in case you haven't, you know, in case you've been living under a rock or something and don't know this, the, the, the city of Santa Barbara, California, uh, kind of pushed by a kids science project that ain't even accurate determined that one of the greatest threats to mankind and, and, and nature 
is a plastic straw. And there's been some plastic straw stupidity in California for a while. On the left coast as a whole, here and there in different local ordinances about plastic straws at restaurants and things like that. But the city of Santa Barbara has outright banned plastic straws. At least that's the claim. And it is punishable, though they said, well, we'll never actually do this, but it's punishable under their law by up to six months in jail. You're threatening peaceful people with violence for the possession of a plastic tube. In my hand right now, I'm holding a pen. It, it differs from a plastic straw in that it's a little bit thicker and that I can write with it. But in the end, if I take the ends off the pen, I pretty much have a plastic straw. But since it's not a single-use plastic straw specifically designed for drinking purposes, I guess it would be legal in the city of Santa Barbara. This is stupidity, and and, and I, I've, I've stayed out of a lot of this stuff recently. If you notice, there's been a lot of stupidity uh, around the country like this, and I, I haven't messed with it much. And the reason is I, I've tried more and more to take my own advice over the years, and that is that we break our lives into the sectors of circle of control, circle of influence, and circle of concern. And then I call the, 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 the square root of F all circle, which is the stuff I don't even care about at all anymore. And a lot of this stuff's moved out of even my circle of concern into the circle of F all, all right? The circle of square root of F all. And uh, this is kind of in that, that, that range to a degree. Because, I, when, you know, I, I rail against the state and the state's use of violence and the willingness of our, of our fellow Americans to always want another law, another law, another law. We want to restrict that. We want to prevent this. We want to compel this. And, and the, the willingness of people to completely ignore that what you're saying is, whenever you want a law for something, I want force by proxy at the point of a gun to compel others to do what I will them to do. And there's places where even I, an anarchist, will go, I can see what you want in that. If it's, you know, I want people that kill people punished, I, I get that. And while I think there's ways we could do that without a state, I am okay using the apparatus of the state for that thing. That is an act of violence, reprehensible violence. Then when I see people want to say, well, I don't like the fact that this person uh, is smoking a plant, I want them compelled by the use of force and violence up into the point of imprisonation or even death, if they, if they resist, to not smoke that plan anymore. I find that incredibly reprehensible. Uh, and you, I want you to, if you've never really heard me out on that concept before, I want you to really think about what you're saying when you say, well, marijuana, for instance, or cannabis should be illegal. You're saying that a human being, not bothering you at all, Growing a plant in a pot in their house, for instance, that pulls a bud off of it, well, he's already in trouble for having the plant. Now he's in more trouble because he pulled the bud off of it, ground it up, stuck it in a pipe, and smoked it. And you're willing to have someone paid for with money that's taken from people against their will get a gun and a taser and mace and a dog and another person that has the same stuff and go grab that person point a gun in their face, and take them to a place and hold them against their will because you don't want them to have, possess, and smoke that plant. As bad as that is, the, the law, and this is why I've tried to teach this from the very beginning, that law is the use of force up until the point of death by proxy to compel your will on another person, to reinforce how horrifying that really is 
Now, the straws actually serve a purpose. That's what you're saying. You're saying that, that, that I don't want this person to have a plastic tube. So I will have a person with a gun put them in a cage for possessing a plastic tube of the wrong kind. Because somebody wanted the virtue signal. So this is what I thought. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm not saying to do this today. I'd like somebody, possibly an attorney would be best, to consider the, the idea that maybe we could do something to protest this at a national level. Because I think I could get like thousands of you do, to do this. If, as long as we get the all clear that I won't be putting myself or anybody else at risk. It is, in fact, illegal to possess these things in the city of Santa Barbara. And I think we could find out all of the people on their, their city council that voted for this. Anybody that signed off on it and said it was okay, they're public officials with names, and they have addresses that you can mail stuff to. Do you see where I'm going? I think what we should all do is look up these people, and if any of them had the good sense to vote no on this, we shouldn't bother those particular people, and we should just buy big boxes of disposable straws and mail them to them, kind of like people mailed tea bags to members of Congress back you know, a few years ago. It's kind of the same thing. Except, in this case, they should be notified that by taking possession of those straws, they are, in fact, in violation of the law that they signed off on, and they should phone up the police immediately and turn themselves in. That's my thought. Now, I don't know if that's... See, I don't know if you can get in some kind of trouble for that. I, I don't see how you could. Because the law is within the city of Santa Barbara. But I don't know if you're using the U.S. Postal Service, for instance, to commit a crime, if it could come back as a federal crime. I don't know if that would be circumvented, for instance, by using, uh, you know, like uh, UPS or something. I, I, don't, I don't know. But it, it, as long as no one can get in any real trouble for it, then I think we could put something together on a bit of an organized level and mail these people drinking straws. And maybe just keep mailing them up. I mean, it's pretty cheap. If we all, you know, if, if we broke into groups and every, you know, we each group picked a person and we mailed each one of those people a box of straws a day for a couple of weeks, maybe they'd get their dad gone uh, head together and, and repeal this law. And you might wonder why make a stand on something like this that's so stupid. Because it's that stupid. Because it's that stupid. Because somebody somewhere is going to be hurt by this. Somebody somewhere is actually going to get a gun shoved in their face over a straw. It's going to happen. That's why you pass laws. And if, if you're not going to stand somewhere, then you know, are you going to ever stand anywhere? So I don't know that this is a good thing to do. So anybody out there that's got some legal expertise, we can look into this and make sure we're not doing something stupid or illegal so we don't get our own selves in trouble for it. Because once you mail something, you kind of cross a bridge that you can't take back, you know, once you let go of it. But, but I, I, and I'd like to hear your ideas on this, I, I, or your thoughts on this. Like, do, do you think this is a useful thing to do? Um, on one level, I, I know it would sure as hell be funny. It, it, it'd be kind of like, uh, you know, I actually thought the, the Onion came out with a, it was Onion or Babylon Bee came out with a, a satirical article that said Bernie Sanders people said to stop mailing them books on economics. I thought, man, maybe we should do that one for real. But this seems like a lot more productive. Maybe understanding, hey, now that you hold this box of straws in your own city, 
you run the risk of going to jail might be something that makes those people think, maybe for the first time in a very long time, because thinking people would not pass such a law. Just a thought. Love to hear what you think about it. Next one I have is from uh, Jared. And, and Jared says, how do you remove poison ivy from a tree without harming the tree or getting tore up myself from the poison ivy? We moved into a new home and asked the builder to save some trees in the backyard. Now that I've taken a closer look, two of them have the largest poison ivy plants I've ever seen with lots of smaller poison ivy plants around them. We have small kids and play outside a lot, so I want them gone and gone for good. What are your thoughts Is this time to be practical instead of purist and grab some herbicide? Is there an effective natural option? Thanks for everything you do, Jared. Well, Jared, at first this might even sound like a little bit admonishing, but it's not. It's the truth. Like one of the things you need to do is teach your kids what poison ivy is because sitting there on that tree, if they leave it alone, it poses like no risk to anybody. So if we just understand that that plant is one you're not supposed to touch, that'll go a long way right there. And so I think, you know, they're small. Well, are they old enough to have a conversation and understand what that plant is? If they are, then you don't have a problem because if they don't listen, they'll learn. They're not going to die from it, right? So they'll touch it and they'll get a breakout and they'll learn not to do it again. And if they're not old enough to have a conversation, then they're not going to be back there without being observed. Because any kid that's too young to have a conversation and understand what poison ivy is is too young to be out in the backyard without having a parent in the immediate area watching what they're doing. So I don't think it's as big of a problem as maybe it's become for you in, in your mind. Now, I do want to get rid of it as much as possible for you. The, the beauty of this is the plant will die if you cut it off at the ground. So, so the me mechanical removal is the best method of getting rid of poison ivy. And as it dries up and dies, it, it, it becomes pretty inert eventually. Um, if you were to wear long sleeves and put some gloves on and go out there with a pair of pruners and prune off all the vines down at the, at the base, everything that's climbing up the tree will die in short order. A little bit of it might hang on if it's managed to parasite and put some roots in the tree. They will do that, but it will not make it. It will not survive. It will die. Um, if you use an herbicide like a Roundup or something like that, it generally will come back. It, it, it is a very difficult plant to kill with an herbicide. If you use enough to kill the, 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 the stuff with an herbicide, you'll probably start really causing some problems for the tree. I mean, it's, it's difficult. There are some herbicides that are specific to poison ivy, and it would not be Roundup that I recommend. If you want to go down that path, I'll leave it to you to look up what those herbicides for poison ivy are. I personally don't recommend that. I would recommend mechanical removal. And I would work, recommend that next season you don't let this get up ahead of steam. Remember, uh, it is perennial from the roots, but it does die every year. Did, don't nobody get no poison ivy in January up north, just to put it bluntly. It just doesn't happen. The stuff dies. Everything above the ground completely dies back, and then it re-sprouts from its root system, which is difficult to eradicate. Um, you could... In the off-season, when it's dead, before the ground is frozen solid, attempt to remove the roots and possibly get a landscaping-type company or someone that, that, that does poison ivy removal to come in and try to remove the roots. But it's, it's a lot like most other plants that reproduce from a rhizome. If there's any piece of it, it will, it will return. And, and so it's, it's, it's really difficult to completely eradicate 
mechanical removal and then watching for it to begin sprouting in the spring and continuously cutting it back to the point where it never gets up ahead of steam is probably your best bet. And if you pay somebody to come in and pull out the roots or you try to do it yourself, you'll probably end up in the same boat. The other thing you can try is to go ahead and, and do some sort of a, a complete blocking of its ability to come back up, something like cardboard, like three or four layers of soaked cardboard, uh, and then some layers of mulch on top of that, and you may you may suppress it to the point where it dies. But if it finds its way up through there, you've given it a better environment to grow in. And the other problem with this is it, it does on some level risk um, your, your trees because trees don't like to have the ground around them covered up like that. Uh, so mechanical removal is my best suggestion. Anybody else has dealt with this, I'd love to hear what, what you would do. Uh, the other possibility is to, once you go ahead and prune it back and cover it up, to plant into that space something that occupies its space. My guess is it's a pretty shady area back under these trees, and so English ivy would do well. If when your builder left those trees and removed the others, it got really sunny under there, this is going to help. Poison ivy doesn't like full sun. It's an edge plant. It likes partial sun. So another thing you can do a lot of times to, to reduce poison ivy is open things up and let a lot more sun in. If you've noticed, you've never walked through a field, and even if there's like a clump of brush there, seen a bunch of poison ivy growing over the top of it, it grows just inside woods. It like Park-like woods are what it really likes. Old-growth forests, is things that are on the edges of those systems is where you see the most of it. If you notice, when you walk through the woods on hiking trails, a lot of times you see poison ivy just on the edge of the trails because enough light gets in for the opening of the trail to give it what it needs but not too much to kill it. So opening up more light, planting other species that will compete with it for the space, these are the best things that you can do. If it's shady enough that English ivy will grow and you can prune it back, and this might be a thing to do in the spring then, and heavily, heavily, heavily plant English ivy. And whenever you see a poison ivy thing coming up, again, just wear gloves, long sleeve shirts, go out there and prune it off and get that English ivy up, you probably will eliminate it as a problem in your life. But the big thing there is to go ahead and make sure that your kids know, hey, don't go touching this stuff. And it, it doesn't... It doesn't, we call it, we say ivy crawls. It doesn't actually crawl, does it? It kind of stays where it is. So, um, I mean, I grew up around it my whole life. I'm immune to it, but my friends all got it, you know, here and there. And it was just something that we learned to deal with and stay away from. Uh, next up, I have a question from uh, Laos. Uh, actually, I see that's, that's a, a sound of lost deal. Okay. Uh, Corey in Colorado. Uh, what is your opinion on underground greenhouses, a.k.a. wall peonies? The details. They seem to be getting more and more popular, but there's not a lot of good information or plans. We live at 8,600 feet of elevation in Colorado, and season extending would help us a lot in our gardening. However, considering that one has to have excavation done, is it no light undertaking? What is your opinion on them, and do you have resources to share, Corey, in Colorado? Corey, let me tell you something about this whole wall. Peonies are getting more and more popular. The idea of them is getting more popular. I haven't seen, like, bunches of people putting them in and going, hey, look at my wall peony and look what it does. 
Uh, I've seen people build greenhouses on the outside of houses, and I have seen people build greenhouses on one level or another are subterranean. Most of the articles you read on these wall peenies have either the same picture of the one that exists somewhere, or they have drawings and concepts and renderings, because all these people talking about them ain't putting them in. The idea itself is sound. If we can properly excavate the right area, we can put in something like a wall peony. And, and, it, and it, it is, you know, scientifically, it makes sense. If we use the ground as an insulator, we'll be all okay. Um, the concept, though, has been pushed. And if you look at it, and the way that it's pushed is like this huge garden uh, giant thing. And I think the practicality for most people of actually constructing one of these things, the way that it's described in this concept that somebody has dubbed Walpini, whoever the hell that was, because everybody's got to name everything something new anymore, um, is probably not very practical. What is practical is a greenhouse that uses underground concepts to it. And Mike Ayler, who wrote... The book on the subject is the guy that I would look to. I think Mike's passed away a couple years ago. I'm not really sure if that's the case or not, but he wrote a book on underground homes, and he wrote a book on greenhouses. And if you want to do this, that's where I would look. The other thing you can do that I think is really a great way um, to build greenhouses that are good season-extending greenhouses in a place like Colorado will be to look at doing greenhouses that are built out of SIP panels. And there's a company that I interviewed at a, at a, uh, an event, uh, like a, a trade show type thing one time, and I'll see if I can find them, that, that built them exactly this way. So most people build a greenhouse, the whole damn thing's glass. Well, the, the northern wall's never going to get any sun. Why is that glass? Why, well, that doesn't make any sense. Your sides, you may not even make sense. So what they tended to do was they built these things out of sip panels, and the glass was only on the south side because you grow in them in the summer. I'm sorry, in the winter, not in the summer. In the summer, you grow outside of the daggone thing. And then there was a panel that came down that exposed the great big window, so like the whole south side was a window. Well, when that panel came down, it came down to sit like a, like a tray table, like something you would stack stuff on. It didn't fold all the way flat to the ground. It came down and it was held by cables, so it was at a 90-degree angle to the building, and it was coated with a mirror. So as that light came in low in the winter, it bounced off of that panel and put more light into the greenhouse. Where the interior was you know, painted with like white reflective colors that so bounced light around really well. And they, they were based in Colorado, and they grew way up in the mountains of Colorado. They had... Lots of success stories of these greenhouses. Again, I can't remember what they're called, but I'll go try to look them up for you and make sure that they're in the show notes. And you can look up the company and see what they're doing, if they're still around, um, and at least understand what they do so maybe you could do it for yourself. They also used a thermal battery technology where they had some pipes going down into the ground and a little bitty fan that runs on almost no energy at all sucking air from the high part of the greenhouse and blowing it into the ground all summer long building up a thermal reserve in the ground, and then blowing it the other way out to help warm the greenhouse through the winter. And it was a pretty cool deal. It was basically an earth heat battery type system, and it wasn't really very difficult to build. And I think something like that, or something like the basic, simple Mike Ehler design, 
has a lot more practicality for a lot more people than a concept like Walpini, which I think just makes good clickbait articles. And I, again, when, when I start seeing three or four people at least going, look at my Walpini, I built it and it works, maybe I'll consider at least looking deeper into it. For me, it's completely impractical. I would have to get out freaking, you know, jackhammers and stuff like that to get into the ground deep enough to do one around here. I don't even have a good hillside that I can work with. My other thing is I do think if you have a house with the right solar orientation, building a greenhouse onto the wall of a home makes a hell of a lot more sense than a wall painting. Now, someone somewhere may perfect this and get it into a way that is easily repeatable uh, and can be done uh, fairly well across the country and it might be worth doing. Until then, I am a Walpini skeptic, and I recommend that uh, you remain fairly skeptical of this idea, too, because right now I think it's really more an idea than something people are actually doing. Next one comes from Mark, New Jersey. Uh, Jersey, place I was born and left as quick as I could. Anyway, uh, he says, hey, Jack, I was hoping you could dovetail. On last week's question on negotiating a salary, which I found very informative, and speak about negotiating a pay raise. Details. I'm moving to Georgia shortly with my family for work. I'll be getting back into my first career, which is automotive repair. The industry when I left 10 years ago was notoriously hard for negotiating a raise. Most people I knew, including myself, would move around from dealer to dealer to get higher pay. Many shops had no structure for achieving a pay raise. I recall you speaking briefly in the past about setting or asking for metrics about achieving merit raises prior to taking employment, hoping you could go into greater detail on the subject. I'm inexperienced at negotiating a pay raise uh, from my previous car repair career, and my current job had yearly raises negotiated into the union contract, and it's just something I haven't had to learn. Uh, I greatly appreciate your insight here. Also, I'd like to put out a call out to anyone in Athens, Georgia area. I'll be arriving there in early September and hope to meet fellow listeners. Walking to Freedom in the regional forums have not been successful in making connections. Please ask people to comment on the blog to get in touch if they wish. Thanks for all you do, Mark in New Jersey. Well, first of all, let me congratulate you on you know, escaping New Jersey. And Georgia's a pretty good upgrade in lifestyle from New Jersey, in my opinion, anyway. You know, Jersey's got some good stuff going for it. It might be a little bit harder to find a really good cannoli in Georgia. Uh, it'll definitely be harder to find a really good authentic um, Portuguese, uh, uh, what do you call it, paella. Man, I mean, that's well, one thing Jersey had going for it. When I was a manager up in that region, there was a few places that the paella was unbelievable. But I think it's worth looking for uh, Georginian paella if you need to another order to get out of German, uh, Jersey. What I want to do here, it's, it's again, it's amazing to me sometimes how things come in from listeners that are so in sync. I actually want to read the next segment's email, and then I'm going to come back to you. But I wanted to go ahead and read uh, Mark's email to kind of set this one up, because they're not the same, but in many ways they're similar. This is from John, and it's one of the better Jack, you're a jerk emails I've seen in a while, though a pretty good one just came in, but it didn't make the cut for today's show. Maybe a... I'll read it next week, Eli. I just got yours. Um, you're a jerk, Jack. Not everyone with the permi, holistic, or voluntarist mindset needs to quit their job and become an entrepreneur. Some of us just need to change how we think and act as employees. I was compelled to write this after some of the segments over the last few weeks. 
About 10 years ago, I was a young father, and I thought I was working at my dream job. People were constantly telling me how lucky I was, but somehow things just felt wrong. I was well-liked by my peers, and our manager saw me as the guy who got his work done without issue. However, my opinion was seldom asked, and I never considered I was never considered for any senior-level positions. I am sad to say that the relationship with my wife wasn't there where it should have been. It was this revelation that kicked me in the ass and led me to lifestyle design, which, of course, is what led me to TSPC. Only I could change my own world. I started by cutting out all the BS talk radio. It's amazing how much energy I had when I stopped arguing with people over the air over issues which I had no influence or control on. Next, I read a little. I read a little each day about my industry and those I had mapped out as being tangentially related to my industry. As my knowledge grew, so did my confidence, and I began to politely interject in conversations and participate more at meetings. At this time, my wife worked away from home at least 10 to 15 days per month, and even when home would be required to join conference calls across several time zones, leading to no family life. On top of that, the eating out while traveling and stress were causing several health issues, ulcers and muscle spasms being the most frequent. During one long stretch home, I sat her down to talk to her about her lifestyle. She wasn't ready for it, but thankfully I could sense the resistance, so I didn't push. Oh, guys, guys, that's genius. I, I've talked about that. You gotta, when you get resistance, stop pushing. Well done, John. I didn't push. I just asked her to mull over what would it take to leave your company, plant the seed and walk away. Well done, sir. While we may have been spending beyond what I now know we should have, my wife at least had an accurate assessment of our finances. She came to me a few months later with a list of expenses that could be cut if she worked locally. It wasn't feasible at that time, but at least we had a target. It had been over a year of continuous growth on my part, and I could tell the management's opinion of me had begun to change. I asked for a sit-down with our VP, and she granted me the request. I laid out my desire for where I would eventually like to be and asked if she could envision me there. I asked what deficiencies in my resume would prevent me from reaching that goal. She was generally excited that I was taking responsibility for my career development and was an advocate of mine until she retired a few years later. Six months after this conversation, I took a lateral move to get the missing management experience I needed. Two years into that position, I had systematized the job to free up time and started a Master's of Science program that they willingly paid for. I would have received a promotion after completing the program, but they were so impressed with my progress after one year, they promoted me early. It was likely done to prevent me from leaving the company now that my network expanded. I was now eligible for management incentive bonus pool, and my wife was able to work part-time. She finally had time to do the volunteer work she had always wanted and to start gardening. Her health improved, and we enjoyed the process of converting our backyard into a food forest together. Permaculture had begun to influence my whole life at this point. I saw patterns everywhere, stacked functions whenever possible. People sought me out for novel solutions and perspectives. I was added to the college recruiting team to find unique talent. I began working with our project development, product development teams and either conceived of or contributed to dozens of product launches that have created millions in new continued revenue. As I moved into mid-level management, I became outraged at the bad behavior and politics that was tolerated. Taking a step back and viewing them in the eyes of permaculture, I saw these bad managers as weeds 
While undesirable, they must be filling some need in the organization or environment or they wouldn't be allowed to stay. I evaluated what they were being praised on and tried to find positive alternatives. It's still a work in progress, but now people are requesting to be transferred under me or at least do a rotation within my department. Three years ago, I had one employee. Now I'm at eight, and my sphere of influence is exponentially larger. With the looming retirement of baby boomers, I was selected to join the strategic work plan team to focus on our scientists and engineers. I am now responsible for identifying talented individuals, identifying skill gaps, and rewriting job descriptions and requirements to make our company ready for a changing world. At home, I can honestly say that things have never been better. My wife and I's relationship is stronger and more enjoyable than even our days before marriage. Our daughters love us and are excited to go on adventures and learn. Depending on the season, we produce about 10 to 40% of our food and willingly share our abundance. Someday I know we'll walk away from the corporate world, but for now I know I am making the biggest impact working from within the system. Thanks for all you do, John. John, thank you. And that's exactly how to do it. If you're going to stay in a job, you start looking for all the ways that you can improve things. And I, I don't need to add much to that, John. You told a great story. I want to, though, use it a little bit and go back and try to talk to John about, I'm sorry, uh, Mark, about his concern about being able to negotiate raises. Well, you just took a new job, so you're not going to get a new raise anytime soon. So this is not an immediate problem, Mark. Uh, but... Honestly, there's a reason in your particular employment that the way that people generally get paid better is to go to a different place. And it's because, as I said, it is, it is, it is never the case that you have more negotiating power than the day before somebody hires you. That's when you're able to get the most that they're going to be willing to pay you. And, and I know that sounds crazy because you'd think that once you've been somewhere for two years and you've proven yourself that they would be more, not less, willing to pay you more money. But when you look at certain trades, like being a mechanic, there is a certain market rate for people with enough experience to do the job. Notice I didn't say the best experience or the highest level of performance capability, but enough experience to do the job. Some of the work is actually somewhat complex and requires a lot of troubleshooting. Before I continue here, you should know that I'm never going to talk down to a mechanic as I used to be one. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for mechanics and people that turn a wrench. But in the end, a lot of the work that you do as a mechanic is work that anybody can be trained to do in a couple months or less. Changing oil, lubricating a chassis, stuff like that. I know you do a lot of other jobs that are more complex. And there's times when you're doing a job on a, on a vehicle where you feel that the engineer li literally must have like had a father that was abusive that was a mechanic. And they did their engineering specifically to punish all mechanics. You, 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 you realize that, hey, this is, this is hard stuff to do sometimes. Uh, there's, there's places like, why did you put that? I mean, if you've ever worked on vehicles on anything more than just changing oil in your backyard, you, you know where I'm going there. But in the end, it's, it's, it's nuts, bolts, and computers. And, and, and it's not that complicated to be able to do at a, at a rate that allows a, a person that owns a maintenance shop to say, if this guy leaves, I can get someone else to do the job. Maybe they won't be as good as them, but I, you know, I'm a limit of what I can pay. And so the best talent finds the shops that are most in need of that higher level of talent at any given time, and they're able to creep up in the rates. So one of the things I always say to people when they say they want to be paid better than their job, what does the person that's the best at your job make? Because whether you want to accept it or not, it's kind of your salary cap unless you change your station. 
So this is not about, well, he makes more money than me, and I'm better than him, so you should pay me more money. But it would be interesting to know, at the, at the level of being a technician, where you go to work, you work on vehicles, and you go home, you're not a manager, you're not a service rider, you're just a mechanic. What is the highest paid person that does that job make? Not so necessarily you can negotiate that rate so that you can come to have like, that we call that come to Jesus meeting with yourself. That, okay, that's it. That's how much you can make as, be, as being a technician. And if you're not happy with that, then you have to find a way for your career to progress beyond that. So then the question would be, in the world of automotive maintenance, what is the highest paid position? And what are the positions between me and that position? So this is exactly what John did in a totally different industry. That probably had, to be fair to you, and to many people that are in trades like this, a much more clear path of progression. You know, it, when you work in a shop environment that's not very large... The problem with asking the person you work for how you move up is that the only way for you to move up is really for them to move out, to either retire or go away. There's not a, a lot of places for upward mobility a lot of times in, you know, if you work for, let's say, Toyota and you work for a dealership, there's only so many technicians they're going to hire. There's only so much hierarchy there. And maybe there's one or two top managers. And you might find when you look at what they make that, you know, is it, It, do you can you make a lot of money in that position? You know, so you got to find out what the the expected t you know what's the median rate? What does the average person in your your career make? What is what is the top rate? And what is different about the people at the top rate than the bottom rate? It isn't they switch jobs more often. That was probably part of their strategy because it sounds like and it was the first thing I thought of before I even read it in your email that that's probably the way that this is going to work. Uh, it's it's a lot how I came up in, in the world, is when I kind of maxed out, I'm going to go somewhere else where they're going to pay me better. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's still the reality that, you know, you need got a dollar an hour more here or there that way, but if, if, if there's a, a, a top, and I have no idea, you know, what that is, but in Georgia, let's say that the best mechanic that's just a mechanic, that's all he does is work on, on cars and trucks, let's say, makes about $28 an hour plus benefits. And I don't know if that number's... Don't get fixated on that number. I'm just saying that, like, let's say that's it. That's the, the top guys make that amount of money. And let's say you're making 18 And I don't know if you are, so don't get fixated on that either. Okay, what is the cause of that gap? Is, do they just, have they just been there longer? Is it just a completely based on, on time? It, do, do they have certifications you don't? So... What you do is you figure out what the top earners do that you don't. Are they on an incentive-based program and they, they move quicker than you? Because, I mean, the number one way to be in control of your own destiny is have some sort of incentive-based program that you actually have direct influence over. That's why I like sales. I sold more, I got more money. Plain and simple, done. Right? I mean, that, that, so there's, there's that approach, too. You know, are there specific dealerships that pay technicians better? Does it pay better to work for Volvo than it does for Ford? I have no idea. I'm just throwing that out there. It is you know diesel certification? I know that has that commands higher rates. I know that does. 
You know, but is it enough to justify whatever expense it takes to, to, to become that? Is, you know, is it better to be a mechanic working for, let's say, a trucking company than it is a car dealership? I don't know. But as a mechanic, this is what you need to find out. You need to like do a, a, a survey of the landscape of the entire profession. And don't talk about this too much at work, okay? Because shops are small environments in general, and the new guy that shows up and is already looking to take over somebody's job or is already looking to move off and go work for BMW or something, probably not a good thing. You need to do this kind of independent research, though. You know, who, what, is, what, what does the highest-paid mechanic make? In, in the state of Georgia. I don't know exactly how to figure that out, but if, if it was important enough to me because I was in the industry, I'd find out. And how do they make that money? You know, and, and then what is the progression that takes you beyond just turning wrenches in your industry? Is it a floor manager? Does it mean moving into more of a service advisor role? Does it involve moving into that role so that you can become a manager of the whole thing? Is it eventually taking the approach of, of putting together your own shop and providing maintenance that way? Is it Does it make sense to work really hard, use your industry knowledge, and eventually do something like a quick car uh, franchise opportunity? I, I don't, and I don't, don't, please don't take any of this as what you should do. But these are the questions you need to be asking yourself because that will give you a full understanding of the landscape. So you'll be able to pick the path that makes sense for you to rise in your field. And you'll be able to judge fairly whether or not you're doing well enough. Because what you're saying is, well, I have a job and I just think I deserve more money. Okay, what, you know, based on your time, your certifications, your skill set, and, and, and be willing to ask your manager, like, is there something I could be doing better? Don't even tie it to money initially. Is there something I can be doing better? Is there things that you think that I need to work on that I need to do better? And you'll find that managers, and don't ask in the middle of shit. You know, ask when everything's laid back and you got a minute and you're away from everybody else. You say, hey, Tom, Mike, whatever your name is, can I talk to you a minute? Yeah, great. I, you know, I've been you know, working here really hard and I'm trying to do my best for, for you and I report to you. So I'm just wondering, is there anything specifically that you think I could do better or that I should be doing to improve my uh, ability to perform for you or advance my career here? Is there any courses I should look into taking? Is there any area right now that I'm slack, you know, I'm falling back on that I could do better? You know, anything like that at all. And generally, you you'll get some sort of a, of a feedback to that, and then take it to heart and go do it, even if you disagree with it. And that sets you up to be able to ask for a raise. But until you have an understanding of the landscape. It's, it's kind of difficult because you're back to the same problem with being an employee that you always have. Unless you're being promoted, when you're asking for a raise, you're asking for more money for doing the same thing. And it doesn't mean it should never happen. I mean, I gave people raises all the time uh, because I, start, I, I looked at them and said, you know, this person right now, I value them enough that even though I could replace them for less money... It would hurt, and I don't want to lose them. So, you know, here's a here's a, a, a 10% bump or something like that. I've done bumps that high. But what I always wanted to try to do with people is move them into some level of an incentive-based program. Okay, look, this is your base, and this is what you got to do to earn your base. 
You do that well. Here's the things that if you can do these things, we can pay you more money for them. And the the reality is when you get into a position where it's almost impossible to find an incentive package for you, it's very hard to, to, to command a raise because you're now a cog in the works. And I'm not saying just as a mechanic that's what you are, but on some levels any sort of a technician has that kind of point where they no longer can really justify a lot more money in the mind of the employer. So we have to look for a promotion path. So I hope that helps. I know it's probably not exactly what you're looking for, but it's it's an honest reality. And it's something that, you know, that conversation should take place in some sort of life skills uh, program that's in high schools. If schools were doing a damn thing for our young people coming out of them so that they understood things like this. So it's not just because that's, you know, and I'm not really going to beat up on unions or nothing today, but it is a union mentality. You've been here long enough, you deserve a raise. That's that's not how the real world without the compulsion of the state works. You get a raise because I value you more now than I did before. And that's because you're doing something for me you weren't already doing. And it might sound a little harsh, but it's reality. Anyway, let's take another one. This is a really difficult one, and I, I might... Uh shifted off to our newest expert council member who I have yet to introduce you to, but we now have a veterinarian uh, who I gave a test question to uh, over the weekend, and she hit the ball out of the park, and she she will be debuted this week on Friday on the expert council show, and uh, we'll have a new vet, and maybe she can help you with this one, because I'm, I'm kind of feel like I'm a really good dog guy, but I'm not exactly sure how to handle this. Here we go. Jack, what would you suggest we do? To get a dog to trust some people when the dog trusts other people. Here's the backstory. My son has a treeing walking coon ha- walker coonhound that he bought when the dog was a year old. He'd been in a pen with other dogs, but evidently little human contact. So it's what my husband called people stupid. It didn't take long for the dog to warm up to my husband and my son, and the dog seems to recognize my husband as the alpha. My son, by the way, is 16, about the same size as my husband, but I'm sure the dog picks up on the authority structure between them. I'll guarantee you he does. I'll guarantee you that dog does. They know who's in charge. Uh, most other men can approach the dog with no problem. However, when any female approaches him, he runs away. He doesn't growl or snap or act aggressively, but he runs away. He also runs from some men, but very few. He doesn't cower anyway. So I don't think he's afraid, but he just flat out doesn't like women. I think even if I don't plan on hunting with the group, it's still important for our animals to trust me. There may come a time when either dog's life or mine depends on it. Unlikely, but not impossible. We also have an American Bulldog that's much smaller than normal. She's either a runt or not all Bulldog. She's the happiest dog I've ever seen. She runs to me every time she sees me, but she's jealous if Tommy or Kyle tries to love on the coonhound. She tries to interspace herself with them. Uh, they discourage it, but it's just something she does. It's a dog thing. Uh, I thought that if the coonhound saw her trusting me, it may get him to lower his guard, but it hasn't yet. It's been a year. What is the key here, Nancy? Nancy, this is hard because the dog has a predisposition that is ingrained in the animal at this point at you know a couple years of age or more. And in my opinion, the dog wasn't raised right. And your husband calls them people stupid. That means that the dog was not part of a pack that included humans. He was part of a pack that only included dogs. People say men are dogs, and maybe that's why he relates to men. They're more dog-like in their personality. I don't know. Um, 
what I would try. I would try having this dog be in a place with you and only you and not approaching the dog at all, but it is somewhat, somewhat confined. I'll explain it kind of like this, and it didn't take long. It'll probably take longer than it did for me. But when I brought Lucy to this house, she was a a a, a wreck. You couldn't touch this dog without her peeing. Man, male, female, didn't matter. Just couldn't touch her. She would pee. She would cower. She would shake. I mean, she would shake like a cat poop and razor blades, is the way you used to describe shaking like that. And when you reached out to touch her, even if she didn't run, she would just drop her head like, don't hit me or something. And she certainly didn't come when called, that type of thing. And I got two other dogs, and I've got to get this dog integrated. I spent a day in our great big three-car garage. Had a nice couch in it. Fortunately, it was a time of year I could do it with all doors closed. Dog go anywhere she wants in there, and I'm the only human there. And I put a bowl of food and a bowl of water down in front of me, and I pretended the dog didn't exist, and I just got on my computer and did my work for the day. And she'd come close, and she'd look at me, and I'd type on my computer and look down at her and talk to her and go back to what I was doing. And by not pushing myself on her, and by being the source of her food and water, she quickly kind of got and snapped to the point of, hey, this this being does not mean me harm. He feeds me, he gives me water, and he doesn't come into my space when I don't want him. And then a little later in the day, I started, you know, brought in a, a biscuit, and she came over and laid down, and I just set the biscuit down in front of her and went back to my deal. And honest to God, in two days, this dog was a different dog with my wife with me she still had the pee problem she was it took she still occasionally submissive urinates but i mean you can walk up to her and pet her down she doesn't immediately pee and and so that worked there this dog didn't have trust for anybody now she likes everybody that comes around it it's not exactly the same thing but it might be a really good idea for the next few months you feed and provide the dog water now, don't tell the boys to take away the affection, but you become the source of food and water. You bring him food, you bring him water. He runs away, let him run away. Let him see you bring the food and water. And things might start to change. Use food as a bribe. If the dog is food, very few dogs are not food responsive. Some of them are. I've met a few. Uh, but most dogs are very, very food motivated. You know, treats and stuff like that and become the, the person that has all the good stuff. The attitude is so important with dogs, though. What will happen is the dog shows a predisposition, I don't, like, I don't like women, so the dog leaves. So you know that, and you're thinking when you go, the dog's going to leave. You're thinking that in your head when you approach the dog. Dogs have sensory perceptions that we do not. And it's beyond just they hear better and smell better. I believe dogs have a level of perception that would be something we would call an additional sense in addition to the heightened ability with, with vision and with scent and, and other things like that. And I think it is some level of an ability to read the energy of an individual. And not in some weird, you know, psychobabble bullshit or a way. I think they actually just in some way feel the energy of other beings. They feel they don't just smell a different smell, they actually feel a fear. They feel an apprehension. 
They feel confidence. They feel uncertainty. They feel that. And that's why if, you, if you're around a neurotic person, like a dog, the dog becomes neurotic. It, it mimics its owner. In this case, the dog has gravitated toward strong male figures, primarily because it grew up in a dog pack where hierarchy was important, and any lack of confidence or assertiveness. And that doesn't mean strictness, right? Because I've seen that not work. We had a dog that really hated this one vet we had, uh, this, this lady named Trey Big. She was a very big woman. I'm not saying that in an insulting way. She just was a large, man-like woman. And uh, the dog hated her. And when he, he growled at her one time, and she's like, no, stop. And I'm like, that don't. I know you think you know what you're doing because you're a vet. That will not work with that dog. That is not, and so I don't mean being, you know, commanding. I mean being confident. And that is probably men in general have more confidence than women in themselves. Okay? Now, I know that's sexist and I'm not supposed to say it, but it's true. No man goes and puts on a pair of jeans, turns around 15 times looking in the mirror at his ass, and comes out and asks his wife, do these jeans make my ass look big? And if a guy does that, that woman he's talking to is not his wife. He's, she's his girlfriend and not the way that we mean it when we talk about asking somebody out on a date. I'm sorry, that's true, that's the way it is. I don't, And I know there's exceptions, but in general, that does not happen. And that does not happen because a man generally feels like, if you don't like me, don't look at me. He might primp up and always going on a date trying to impress a woman, but in the end, you know, men generally just feel like this is what I am. Women have misgivings about themselves, and that's what marketing plays on. You can see it. Go look at the magazines they put at the front of the grocery store. And that dog has no sense of political correctness. And, and I think, I can't know this, I think he's gravitating toward the assertive, dominant confidence of the male. So I think you need to walk with that confidence, and your attitude toward that dog running away from you needs to be, I don't give a damn if he runs away from me. I don't care. You don't try to lure him in with affection for the other dog. You do what you're going to do. That dog is your dog, clearly. Right? And, and when I say that, I mean, I don't mean like you own him. I mean like that Charlie's my dog. All the dogs belong to all of us here in this house, but Charlie's my dog. That's why he's laying at my feet right now while I'm podcasting and not out there with the kids or the wife because he has decided for himself that I am attached to this human specifically. So that dog's attached to you. Spend your time with that dog, but take care of the chores for the other dog for a couple months with an attitude of, I don't really care if this dog doesn't like me. You might be surprised what happens. You might not. I mean, I don't know. If anybody's dealt with this type of thing, let me know. I, I've seen dogs that don't like people to the point where they're aggressive, and that's a lot more concerning of a problem. Um, generally, I think that when dogs do this, whether it's pretty passive like yours or whether it's a, a danger thing where they just like hate certain people, growl at certain people. I believe the dog is mentally defective. That doesn't mean we throw them away. But, I mean, there's been a damage. Something's damaged the dog. This is not how normal dogs behave. Normal dogs like people. Normal dogs only don't like people when they read, this is a bad person. You know, every dog I've ever owned, if my dog really doesn't like you, 
I don't like you and let you into my life. That's not the situation you have here. You have a dog that has a problem in how it was raised. As your, son, your husband called it, people stupid. Um, and it's not so much people stupid, it's he wasn't socialized with people. And if we could go back and get this animal as a pup, we could fix this problem because it would have never happened. But now we have to deal with it. So I'd like to know how others have dealt with this type of situation. But I think becoming the dog's source of food and water um, and, and having a nonchalant attitude toward the animal will probably go a long way to repairing this. The, the interesting thing will be if that happens, then will it translate into other females or will the dog always have an inversion of females and, but you can win him over? Uh, and it's probably going to be that. And, and there's no way to know what particular synapse fired a certain way while that dog was in development where he decided that of these two-legged things that walk around, I like those ones but not those ones. Because quite usually it's actually the opposite. Dogs tend to, you know, when there's a, when there's a weird thing like that, they tend to prefer women. You know, they'll, they'll be more obedient for a man if the dog's balanced sometimes. There's that predisposition. But when they, when they actually have an inversion, it's usually the other way around. It's, it's a strange thing. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. So many of you will remember that I had Dylan Allen, a.k.a. from the blog and the forum Angus Bangus, on about a few weeks ago. We talked about energy and nuclear power. Uh, we talked a little bit about anarchism, a lot of other stuff like that. You guys really had a lot of great feedback for him. He sent me an email and uh, talking about the, the cost of energy storage going down. And the headline for this article is Tesla batteries save $500,000 for Green Mountain Power through hot weather peak shaving. Uh, basic brief here is the Green Mountain Power Company said its residential battery storage program rolled out last year in Vermont saved about $500,000 by reducing peak demand during the July heat wave. When temperatures spiked on July 5th, GMP called on about 500 of the Tesla Power batteries to send power back to the grid. GMP partnered with Tesla last year to offer Powerwall 2 batteries to 2,000 customers, which could potentially help reduce peak load by 10 megawatts. The utility will continue to roll out the remaining 1,500 batteries in its program. Uh, and then the upshot from Dylan was when it gets so cheap, there's a point where you just do it. And in this instance... The, the, the Powerwall 2 is costing these customers either $1,500 or $15 a month. They ran a similar program a couple years ago, and it cost $37.50 a month in 2015 versus $15. It's more than gone in half. It's almost gone in a third. Now, when I looked at these numbers, I didn't want to take them at face value. Because I was thinking, you know, if I can go out... Tesla Powerwall, $1,500 sold. Because this article also talks about how distributed solar starts to fit in with this. Well, a Tesla Powerwall 2.0 right now is about $6,000 you know, and some change when it comes down to everything you need other than just the batteries, the battery wall itself. So this is significantly subsidized. However, I've not been able to find anything saying that this subsidization came from government. Now, there may be some back-end subsidization because a guy that knows how to milk the government for every penny he can in his businesses is Elon Musk and Tesla. I mean, he has pulled a bunch of money out of government to do this stuff. So he might have some back-end, and I'm sure that when 
you know, they say they partnered, and Green Mountain Power uh, goes to Tesla and says, we're going to buy 2,000 of these things. Well, you know, they're not going to pay full price. But they're not going to get the, the, the markdown that much. So what's why would the power company pay the differential, even partly, to get you to put a power wall in your house? Well, they saved half a million bucks. They saved half a million bucks. So, you know, we start considering that if they, they paid full retail for 2,000 power walls at six grand a piece is 1.2 million, and then just this year they saved half a million bucks. Well, these things last at least five years or more before needing to be upgraded, replaced, whatever. So if you do a half million a year for four years, you're at $2 million versus $1.2 million. That's a straight-up retail price. Okay, so what we're, what we're picking up from that is that these power companies, and we talked about this with Dylan, by not having to build peak capacity in the plants, save even more money. So the fact that they can build storage in the plants and use the storage during peak demand versus build a plant to meet peak demand, and it might only run at peak for 2 to 5% of the year, and they're building all this additional capacity, there's a lot of money there. So by simply adding storage capacity to power plants... The power plants save money. Now, what this is doing is letting the customer offset some of the expense and is distributing the storage. And since the storage is distributed, it's more, not less, reliable. See, if we centralize the storage and something happens to that facility, it's all lost. If we distribute the storage and Jack becomes a, a client... Of, of TXU Power with a power wall in his home and Jack's house blows up for some reason, we've only lost basically one microcell of the giant supercell that is the network of batteries. So the, the, the energy companies, to at least some degree, and I, I would not be surprised if there's some government money in here somewhere, but the energy companies look at this and say, instead of investing a huge amount of money And going through all this permitting and bullshit that we have to do every time we add something. We can get the customer to pay for 20-25% of this upgrade and distribute the technology all throughout our infrastructure so we don't have a single point of failure. So of course we're going to do it. And it's going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Now, if you start adding solar to this, And you're, eventually you're going to see the death of net metering because you're, you're not going to get paid for what you're producing, and you're not going to produce enough to get paid anyway. This is all going to kind of balance out, but if, if every home with a power wall you know, has even a few kilowatts worth of, or you know, a few kilowatts of power, you know, five kilowatt system on the roof or something like that, and then you start to distribute that with storage, then the job of the energy companies gets even easier. And once they have the storage, and they're harvesting something like wind power, and they can go ahead and generate more because they have a place to put it, and all this stuff that we talked about from Tony Seba with, with the, the, the disruption 
The energy you start to see that just like Dylan and I talked about in that episode, it's probably coming faster than either of us think it is. We both think that, that Tony Sieben, I'll, I'll put a link to his presentation called Clean Disruption in the show notes. We both think he's overly optimistic. We both have a, Dylan and I have a very similar timeline that we think is realistic. But as we look, we're starting to think that maybe Tony's timeline is a little bit more accurate than ours. It's hard to admit that. You know, maybe more for him than me because he's come up in the power industry the whole time. I'm a pretty good procrastinator, procrastinator, prognosticator about the future. But as I look at this, I start to see the point where this snowballs. You know, and again, when you get to the point where I can get a power wall from the power company for 15 if they had this right now, if they offered me this for $15 a month, you think I would have one? I'd get two. I'm telling you, I would get two. And there'd be solar, grid-tied solar, going into it tomorrow. Of course there would. Duh. It, because when you have this, when you have this, especially if you have an ability to be both grid, you have the ability to be grid-tied and battery backup. That's, that's, the, that's the best part, of, that's the best solar there is. Grid-tied with battery backup solar. Because now, when the power's gone from the power company, I still have power from the panels that goes to the battery that goes to the house. And when you're putting that system in, the whole thing about the lineman getting electrocuted is taken into account. right? It's installed to make the lineman safe when we do that. It's expensive to do. You're basically getting the expensive part for 15 bucks a month. Well, why the hell wouldn't you put solar panels on your roof once you had this? It's so simple, and anybody can do it. Anybody that can run a drill can figure out how to do this at this point. And as the cost of panels come down, and we start getting to a point where you can you can produce power for five to seven cents, you know, a, a, a kilowatt versus what the the the, the power companies are charging, uh, then you make what Tony Seba calls the uh, the selfish decision there. The, the average across the country, and it varies, and there's places where it's really stupid cheap and places where it's really stupid expensive, but it's about $0.12 cents a kilowatt hour. Well, so what that tells you then is the minute that you can invest in solar panels once you have one of these things that starts producing solar energy across the life cycle of the system for 8 or $0.09 cents kilowatt hour, then it it begins to immediately make financial sense to do it. And, and this is the brilliance of Tesla. Tesla is the next Amazon. People that don't get where Tesla's going didn't pay attention to Amazon. People talk about Amazon now and, and doing like almost a trillion dollars in business a year. And they don't realize that until a couple years ago, Amazon never made a profit. And now they run on a margin of about one and a half to two and a half percent. But they own the world. Jeff Bezos owns the world. Not the Dr. Evil way, the smart way, the entrepreneur way. I'm not exactly a huge fan of Mr. Bezos, and he doesn't really own the world, but in a lot of ways he owns the freaking world. Because you can get anything on Amazon quickly delivered to your home. 
I mean, on some levels, they own the post office now because the post office is like their bitch boy. The post office will deliver on a Sunday for Amazon, and yet Amazon is working on replacing the, the, the post office with basically Amazon Uber is what it, what it comes down to. Most of the stuff I get delivered by Amazon anymore in a big market like Dallas-Fort Worth, it's not the mail. The, the U.S. mail doesn't come. It, it, it's not UPS. It's not FedEx. It's some guy in his private vehicle dropping packages off at my gate. Pretty soon that, that vehicle's going to drive itself. And, and this is the approach Tesla's taking. They'll lose millions and millions of dollars. They don't care. It's not their money. They don't care. It's investors' money and it's government money. It's theirs to lose. They're laying the groundwork to where almost every home in America, almost every home in America will have a power wall. And you're like, no. Almost every, almost every home in America today orders items from Amazon. Don't they? Don't they? Why? Because it's convenient and it works and it makes sense. That's why. It's not you're in love with Jeff Bezos or you hate Jeff. It's just, hey, look, I need this thing. It comes to my house. It costs me less than going to the store. It doesn't take me a bunch of time to go there. You know, I'm just going to get it that way. Almost every single person, not everybody, but almost every person in America that has an iPhone or a Galaxy has a Kindle app on it, don't they? And you get books on it delivered to you from Amazon. Because they were willing to, to, to go out and put the infrastructure in so that then they could sell across it. That's what Tesla's doing here. And there's other people that will do it. But I don't know that anybody else will do it as fast or as, as well. And that's the beauty of capitalism. If someone does, they'll knock them off. But if they don't, then they'll become that go-to. There'll be alternatives. It won't be a monopoly, but uh, it may be almost... You know, a lot of times monopolies are monopolies by choice of the consumer. The reason that company has such a dominant force is it gives the customer exactly what the customer wants, or does it? It gives it more. It gives customers more of what they want than anybody else does. You know why don't why don't I order from Walmart? Because Amazon works better for me. That's why. Because my life is easier because it's there, and because it's become habitual. Like, they have to do something to piss me off now to make somebody else my... I always check there first. And many of you do too. Now, many of you... There will always be... You know, there were people that when, 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 when Apple had the iPod, thought, I'm going with the Zune for Microsoft. Well, there will always be Zunes. Some of them will make it, and some of them will be actual Zunes. Have you seen a Zune lately? <laughs> anyway, let's take another one. So with something to just be a little fun, I, I played a song uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Radar Love by Golden Earring, and as I said in the intro, the video has a guy driving uh, a Reliant Robin, which I consider the stupidest car in history, the dumbest car in history, period. Um, and, and I said, if anybody knows a dumber car, uh, please email me uh, the, the, about it, and if you can show me a car stupider then the Reliant Robin, I'll, I'll say Jack was wrong. I don't think I was wrong. Some of you did send me some stupider cars. They're worse cars. Definitely worse cars. Um, the, the PLP 50 is, 
if you look that one up, and I'll put a link to that too on YouTube. It's a car that's so small, a dude on Top Gear drives it to the Top Gear front door of the thing and reaches down and picks it up and takes it inside like a like a wagon. But this thing was like made for the Isle of Man, which is like the smallest nation in the world, and like it was only in existence for a couple of years. Uh, and there's some others, a BMW one, I can't remember what it's called, but it was dumb as crap too. Um, and then. Uh, Larry sent me the car that I think is the not the stupidest car in the world, the worst car ever built, the 1951 Hoffman. And this is difficult to even explain how terrible this car is. There's a video on YouTube that Larry sent me. You can look that up, or I'll, I've got it for you in the show notes. And I'm telling you, when you're having a day where you need a laugh, watch this video. I mean, I, the first time I laughed, I, I was laughing so hard my stomach hurt. It, it was so funny how bad this car was in so many ways. So since there's these cars, the PLP 50, the, the 51 Hoffman, that are worse cars than a Reliant Robin, why do I say the Reliant Robin is the stupidest car that anybody ever made? It's because these other cars were made for a year or two as some kind of novelty or some kind of gimmick, and they accepted the fact that they sucked and they went away. Well, not a Reliant Robin, no! This was a this was a legitimate ideal in the idea idea in the eyes of Reliant. They made this damn thing from 1973 to 1981, and it finally went away. 73 to 81, they made it for nine years. Do you know what they did? In 1989, they brought this thing back from 1989 to 2001, And then in 2001, they went ahead and manufactured it for another year um, in, in, by uh, B&N Plastics manufactured it. This thing spans the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and 2000s. This is a, it was a production vehicle that was actually made in significant numbers. They even upgraded it. The damn thing was a death trap with a 748cc motor. And they, they, they increased the freaking horsepower to 848 cc's, a straight four motor in it, with a damn thing nearly blow itself upside down if you floored it. It, it. This car is so bad, and yet they continued. There's a, you know what there is not of the 50, 51 Hoffman? There's not multiple editions. The freaking Reliant Robin has a Mark I, a Mark II, a Mark III, and then a BN1 and a BN2 version of it. They made five different versions of this thing. And I put up a video. Do <laughs> you think you're going to laugh when you watch the Hoffman video? Top Gear did a video with this thing. And they did apparently add some weight to car to make it flip a little easier. But these cars are known for rolling over. And they drive this damn car around. And get people to tip it back over for them every time they flip it. Like random people on the street. You think you laugh at the Hoffman video. You what do you watch this Reliant Robin video. And the reason I say this is the stupidest car that was ever made isn't because they're wanting a car that maybe was in some ways worse, but because the damn thing was around for four different decades. People actually, cool. there's enthusiast clubs of this thing. 
It is the most ridiculous automobile ever made that was actually made in significant numbers over a significant period of time. If you can prove that there's a car that's been around that long, that has its own races where they flip them over trying to race each other, that has an enthusiast club that you can time its quarter-mile speed with a freaking calendar and was made across four decades. I'll admit I was wrong and it was a dumber car, but I have yet to see it. The Hoffman, though, you got to watch this video. It is probably the worst car ever made, but it was made with whatever was left over in post-World War II Germany. At least they have an excuse for how crappy this thing is. This Reliant Robin, I, I don't even know what to say. Anyway, uh, let's cover some other stuff before we wrap up today. So next I have a question on, on transplanting apple trees, and it's, uh, it, it's a pretty simple one to answer here, so I'll do it quick. Dylan says, Jack, um, what do you recommend for transplanting three-year-old apple trees? I'm in, in the three, spring of 2016, I planted apple trees at a property that we had to leave in the fall. Now the owner wants to remove them and ask if I want them back. We live in Zone 5A in Wisconsin with clay soil. Thanks, Dylan. Um, it may not be worth it. You probably there's probably not enough of them, and it doesn't have the the, the value to like hire one of those um, spade things that come in and like pluck it up out of the ground, which would be the easy way. Um, it depends on how big they are, and how much you're gonna lose in like shock and transplant. But here's the best way that you can do it: um, get yourself in the mindset of trying to get this guy to wait until these trees go dormant when the leaves fall off them. Expose as much of the roots as you can. Try to get a significant amount of root material. Prune the roots off. Keep them moist and immediately transplant it into the next location. So have your, your other places ready to go. Uh, you can look at renting something called an air spade, uh, which is not the big giant tree plucker thing that we're, that I'm talking about. Otherwise, uh, this is a thing that basically uses compressed air to blow dirt off of your roots. That'll make it a lot easier to expose a lot more of the roots faster. You can try using a pressure washer to do this, uh, but it makes a lot of mud and a lot of, you know, it's a lot of, you know, it's dirty uh, and mess is the word I'm looking for. And the pressure washers are strong enough they can actually damage the roots which is what you're trying to avoid. Uh, but if you can get a root ball you know, that you can prune off, those roots will grow back, but they'll never grow back as strong as they were when they were put in the ground. So it's a matter of how many of them there are and how much time it's going to take, and do you think it's worth it? You know, if it's five trees and they didn't really do that well and they're not that big, but they're healthy, you know, it might be worth doing. If it's 100 trees, that's a lot of work, but it's a lot more return, you know? Um, you might want to do one and see if you think it's worth it or not. Uh, three years, though, um, but you've actually had them in the ground, too. You planted them in 2016, so they're year-old trees. I have some three-year-old apple trees are pretty substantial trees, and I have a feeling with the, the deeper soils you have, they may be more so. But, but that's what you would do. I mean, wait till it's dormant, have your new place for them ready to go, pull them out of the ground, prune them off, Get them there, and an air spade. You can again. You can look it up. A lot of times, rental companies will rent them to you. Uh, is the tool of choice for trying to do this on kind of a a self guided uh, way. Especially clay soils are pretty tough to dig in. Uh, let's take another one. This one on ducks and their wastewater. Uh, Tori says, "What do I do with duck manure tea? I have four ducks and a goose, and I change their small kiddie pool daily. 
It's about 20 gallons of manure water that I dump on the grass each day, but can I be better utilizing this duck tea? I fear pathogens on the food plants. Is there something I should be worried about? I probably shouldn't put root plants like fennel and sunchokes. I also wonder if I should be diluting the water. Would a, day, would a day's manure in 20 gallons be too concentrated? Should I let the water age before I put on my plants? If so, lots of buckets and water storage for small suburban uh, lot of food production. Thanks for all your help, Tori. Probably just no. I mean, overall, um, you can go to YouTube and look up duck ponics, and you can see with that small number of birds, there's people that have set up basically uh, like an aquaponic system that the ducks use, and when the ducks manure in the water, it cleans it all out and... You know, that might work. I did notice the lady that did it had a very small number, like you do, but she also had muscovy ducks, and they're just less disgusting. They just really are. Duck water is gross. Uh, and it is a combination of manure and mud and food because they put their beaks in there and they clean their beaks out. Uh, we, you know, we've even did do some watering solutions where the ducks could not get in the water and poop, and it still was disgusting very quickly because they were cleaning their beaks out, and that's why we gave up and let them do it. I don't know what kind of system you're running, but if you're moving your, you're letting your ducks move around, the best thing to do is use this water on trees. Trees respond very well to it. You're not going to have any contamination issues, and move your pool daily. And so, you know, you fill up the pool next to this tree. The ducks do their thing. Move it over here. The ducks do their thing. Move it over here. You know, and, and put it in a rotational uh, usage. Now, if your ducks stay more in a holding area and they're not let out, then what I actually did when we had our ducks is I planted some trees around the holding area because even with them being let out, you know, that many, we had over 100 of them going in every night. We had duck crap water every morning. And so we had six trees and two big tubs of water. They were about 20 gallons. And so the two, you'd have like position one and two would be where the water is today and you dump it out in the morning and leave it until they can't, you know, come home at night, we'd fill it back up. That way they'd use their water out and about, and then it would go to position three and four, and then five and six, and then back to one and two, so we didn't overdo it in any one given area. And that worked really well. I would not go dumping this on a vegetable garden. Um, you, can, you can definitely get into some problems with E. coli and other pathogens and stuff like that. Um, dumping some of it into a compost pile that's hot composting, you know, your 18 to 21 day composting, using it as a, a, a wetting agent, that's probably not a bad idea. But that's not something you're going to do daily or frequently. I would not store it up in buckets. I mean, you're asking, you're at, you're you're literally breeding disease. Uh, when this stuff goes to the ground, ground takes care of it. I've had no, I've never had any problems doing it that way. Uh, but as you know, ducks like to, to stick their beaks in the mud and mess stuff up. So t in my opinion, it needs to be moved frequently. And, and daily is what I mean by frequently. Uh, but I would not try to, don't try water in your, your gardens with it or anything like that. Uh, do look up the duck ponics thing. I, again, I'll put a link in the show notes for you. But uh, it pro I, I think that's something that could work for people with a small flock. But I don't know if it's worth the effort for most people. But you can take a look at it. Last one of the day comes from Bill in Iowa. Bill says, Jack, this is Bill in Iowa. I'm wondering about distilling my own fuel for my lawnmower. I recently got five pounds of hemp seed. Hemp, not its sister. I'm wondering if malting some of it for distilling might be a neat adjunct. My lawnmower really likes the corn fuel uh, that I have. 
the barley fuel that I have and the rye blend fermenting that was well-aged in charred oak barrels so that it looks like gas. What are your thoughts on corn and hemp or four-grain corn, barley, rye, hemp blend? Do you think it would be worth trying? I literally have nothing in the hemp seeds. Um, so just so I don't have to try to maintain this facade, Bill's talking about making moonshine out of hemp seed. Uh, it can be done. There is a company called Colorado High or something like that that's playing off the whole high thing because it's just hemp, right, that does a hemp vodka. There's a company, I can't remember the name of them, but it's doing a moonshine made from hemp seed, so it can be done. It does seem to take some effort. That there, It's not as easy to basically get a mash out of hemp seed. But, you know, if you want to try it, you can go ahead and do it. Um, I don't think it's probably the best use of hemp seed, um, and the cost is probably going to make it prohibitive, you know, other than a novelty distillery like Colorado High or something like that. Um, it, it just isn't as easy to do. Uh, and it does, if you go to Colorado High's website and you read uh, how, they, how much effort they put in to be able to do it reliably, Uh, and maybe they're just saying that so that other people don't try it. I don't know. But uh, there's nothing wrong with giving a shot. Um, it'd be interesting to know what the yields are. I don't know that five pounds would give you very much. I mean, five pounds of corn ain't going give you that much. Um, so it, it, what I would actually do is I would do a test batch of it and see what kind of a yield you get so that you can figure out whether it's worth doing in the future or not. But I, I imagine it would contribute its own unique flavor profile to, you know, a mash uh, and into a resulting distillate. However, you know, when I see something, like, I have not yet tried the Colorado product because I know it's just a gimmick to get people to buy it because it's got that leaf on the label and drunk college kids will pay more money for it or something. Um, I don't think as a vodka you'd get much of a difference to it because, It's probably being fermented, or I mean uh, distilled multiple times up to like a 190 and then diluted with water back down to make a very clean-tasting neutral spirit. So this would be something that if you wanted the full character for your lawnmower to appreciate, you'd want to run through like a pot still or something. Uh, I think it's a unique novel idea. I'd love to hear if it works out uh, from Iowa there. Bill, we know that's not your real name. I guess you're paranoid about this, but... Uh, Uh, moonshining is something people are doing here and there and all everywhere, and people are on YouTube doing it. And I don't think the government's monitoring podcasts to come get people. Uh, I'm not going to say that I do it or anything, but, you know, it is something that's out there. And uh, I've talked to quite a few people in law enforcement. They're like, they're not really looking for it unless it's somebody running some kind of a major business or something like that. Uh, but it is something to maybe not really talk to a lot of people about. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up things for the day. I want to remind you one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You can find all the cool stuff that we were talking about earlier at Amazon over there and my deals of the, uh, their deals of the day. You can see all the stuff that I've reviewed. I'm bringing an item back around again because I don't know how long it's going to be around. Um, it's the Leopold VX1 2-7 power scope. Uh, this is like my favorite scope in the world for like 22s, small carbines, light things. Like I have a Ruger uh, 77357 with this scope on it. I just think for the money, it's always been one of the sweetest deals out there. And it used to sell for about $220. 
It was discontinued a while ago, and they continue to drop the price on it as they're trying to liquidate all of it, I guess, and get rid of all the stock they have in it. It's on sale right now for $173, uh, which is about 50 bucks off of its high. And I thought it was worth every penny at that, so I'm bringing this one around again. Uh, if you have uh, you know, a, a, a 1022, a Marlin Model 25, any of the Ruger 77 series, things like that, any of those lightweight rifles, you don't want to overscope it, you don't want to mortgage your kidney to be able to buy a scope. The, to me, again, without getting stupid, you know, being cheap about it and going and buying like a $50 scope, good quality scope from a manufacturer like Leupold, um, this thing's a steal at $170. I don't know if they'll drop the price much more. Uh, if they do, I'll let you know, but... Uh, I picked up another one. I don't even have a gun for it, but I'm like, I know there's going to be a point where I'm going to want one of these scopes, and I've got one now in, in the upstairs storage closet because I know that it's going to be difficult to replace this. I don't know if Loophole plans on bringing anything else out in its place, uh, but you can find it at tspaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com and scroll down. Remember, you can always help support us no matter what you buy. As long as you buy it, by going to T-SPAS first. Uh, next up, uh, I have a song for you leading off Billy Joel Week. And we're going to be going through Billy Joel songs this week that are ones you may not have ever heard. Certainly the less well-known Billy Joel music. I've always loved Billy Joel and his music. I didn't know till only a few years ago, though, that Billy Joel actually tried to kill himself. Uh, after the ending of his first marriage and having problems with uh, getting an album released and stuff like that. And uh, this song, Tomorrow Is Today, is the one we're leading off today, is basically his thoughts on wanting to take his own life. In fact, Joel said flat out, this is a suicide note written into a song. It's back when he tried to kill himself by drinking furniture polish and taking a bunch of drugs. Uh, his suicide attempt failed to kill him. But it did give him an upset stomach and enough to be hospitalized. I think it was his drummer rushed him to the hospital. Um, the lyrics are pretty clear if you if you understand that's kind of what you're you're dealing with. But it's really the last stanza that basically says, you know, I, I don't want to be here anymore. He says, though I'm living and I'm singing, and all my although my hands still play, soon enough it will all be over. Because because tomorrow is today. There's also something strange in this song. There's this point where he comes off the, the the sound of the Billy Joel that we all know, the classic sound, and he comes into this kind of guttural, deeper, painful voice. But it, it for me, it's hard to take it seriously. Because what I what I see in my head is Adam Sandler on Saturday Night Live singing the Hanukkah song. Uh, he, he sounds kind of like Adam Sandler. When Adam Sandler tries to pretend he's really singing for real, like that kind of Adam, not the not the happy-go-lucky one when he gets, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about if you've ever seen Adam Sandler do a bit where he does this in it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit strange. It, it almost sounds like a totally different person. I'm sure there's an intent behind that. But what I wanted to talk to you about today is... The meaning of a song like this and why it would make a person want to take their own life. Tomorrow is today. That actually seems like a song that could be very inspirational. You know, if you think about the concept, tomorrow is today. Those what we do today, you know, we could we could take a real message about the future. 
Like what we do today is going to impact tomorrow. But that's not the place the song's coming from. The song is coming from the point of, I already know what tomorrow is going to be like. Because it's going to be like today, which was like yesterday. In other words, this is never going to get any better. You know, in the, 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 the second to the last stanza, he says, I don't care to know the hour because it's passing anyway. I don't have to see tomorrow because I saw it yesterday. And, and I think this is the rut that people get in where when, the, when they, they figure why the hell not just leave. Because it's never going to get any better. It's never going to be better than it is right now, and I'm miserable right now. And, and songs like this force us to examine ourselves at times and, and, and see if we're ever heading into a place like this. And I think I've talked about this before, and I've said this before, but if you ever feel yourself getting into a place like this, get some help. There, there'll be no solution in taking your own life. And I, I find it to be, in many ways, a very cowardly act because it, it takes no concern for the people that she'll leave behind. Even when people try to trick themselves into believing, well, I made sure they were going to be okay. They're not going to be okay. They want you. And I know some people think there's no one that's going to care, but someone's going to care. And there's something left to be done or you wouldn't be here. Now, I understand people that end up with a terminal illness and all they have is pain for a couple more days and they choose to, to take control of that situation. I actually understand that. 100%, and I, I don't mean any of my comments about somebody in that situation. But a person that simply feels that today sucks and tomorrow's going to be the same and yesterday was the same, I can understand where they are mentally, but there's no solution in taking your own life. Because the truth is, tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. Because if we turn this around and think about it the right way, what tomorrow is today, the things that we do today can change our tomorrows. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I've been living for the moment, but I just can't have my way. And I'm afraid to go to sleep, cause tomorrow is too. Tell me life is sweeter, but I don't hear what they say. Nothing comes to change my life, so tomorrow is today. I don't care to know the hour, cause it's passing any.